You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. All right. If you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We are um, continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John, and we've called that series come and see. And the reason we've called it come and see is because in the gospel of John is this repeating invitation over and over again to come and see Jesus for who he truly is, to look upon him over and over again and gain insight after insight of this one who truly is more glorious than anything we have ever known or looked upon in this world. So this gospel is an invitation to to come and behold Jesus, to marvel at Jesus, to have our affections stirred for Jesus, and so then to share in the joy of knowing Jesus. Um, And today is no different as we enter into John chapter 3, and we see Jesus encounter a very religious man named Nicodemus as they engage in a conversation about how we gain eternal life. So with that, let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, Lord, to us. Lord, we gather with all sorts of different things upon our hearts. Some gather with health issues upon their hearts. Some gather with sin issues. Lord, sin upon their hearts and minds, aware of it, struggling with it. Some gathering with weakness and weariness. Some gathering with joy and strength and energy. Lord, but each of us, Lord, are coming and as we come and we lay our lives before your word. We submit ourselves to your word, Lord. We pray that you would do wonderful things. In your great power and might, may you encourage your people, those who are gathering here who have known your saving grace, Lord, who have tasted of the joy of salvation, Lord, as they gather in here today. Lord, may you strengthen and encourage. May you open their eyes to you over and over again to know you with deeper affections and joy and love, Lord. And Lord, for those who are gathering among us who have not known you, whether they are culturally religious. They think they know the God of the universe, but at a distance, or they're coming in and despising this place, despising the people, despising the songs, but yet feeling forced to come. Lord, however they come in, even with that heart posture, all things are working for your glory. And so we pray that them being here, that you would point their eyes to you. You are stronger than their hardened heart and emotions and thoughts of you. You and your great power can overcome the heart. You can capture the wayward sheep, Lord. May you do it for your glory this morning. That you would be exalted. That your church would be built Your kingdom come in this world, Lord. Oh, Lord, use a weak little creature this morning, a weak little vessel to proclaim your word, and may you do your glorious work. In Jesus' name we pray, and his church says, amen. 
Amen. I have a question for you this morning. What makes a Christian a Christian? What makes a Christian a Christian? Is it that you wear a cross around your neck? Well, I can tell you this. I wore a cross around my neck growing up, and I was definitely not a Christian when I was wearing that cross. Or is it that you put that cross on the wall of your, of your home? Maybe you have a picture of the Last Supper in your dining room. What makes a Christian a Christian? Maybe you listen to positive and encouraging Christian radio. Maybe that's it. Maybe your answer would be, well, I, I grew up going to church as long as I can remember. So if, so, if someone would say, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. And your answer is, I grew up going to church. That's all I remember. I've memorized Bible verses, and I never got in trouble at Bible day camp. I'm a Christian. Or maybe you think what makes you a Christian is that Christmas time comes around and you put a nativity scene in your front yard. Or make sure you go to church on Easter, Sunday, and today. Maybe every once in a while when it really gets hard, I pray. Or maybe your answer is, well, Phil, I give money to the church. Me and God are good. I've been told that. By God's grace, not by someone in this body. I've been told that. Phil, I give my money to the church. Me and God are good. So I ask it again. What makes a Christian a Christian? Many people think that by simply doing what I just described makes them a Christian. We live where there's something called cultural Christianity. There are many who despise Christians, but there are also many in our city and maybe even among us who would say, absolutely, yes, I'm a Christian. But as you hear them speak and they unpack their lives and they unpack what their faith is in, you actually begin to see fairly quickly that their faith is actually or has little to do with Jesus himself. I'm a Christian, but my faith has little to do with Christ, actually. It has more to do with, with what I have done or am trying to do or am trying to be. I'm just trying to pray as much as I can. I'm just trying to do as many good things as possible. In a sense, it's, it's this. It's my obedience or my religiousness is going to earn me right standing with God. So the sad thing is, across the United States, right in this very moment, in church gatherings just like this, are those who are gathered with the church who are genuinely not the church. They are Christian by association. They're Christian by name or tradition. Maybe sitting in church gatherings for years who have never truly trusted and loved Jesus and submitted their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior and are living a facade of Christianity. It has no life-changing power, 
has no life-sustaining joy or hope in Jesus, no true hope of eternal life at all. So death is terrifying. Happenings of the world, when banks are messing up and messing around with people's lives and all sorts of things seem to crumble and wars are happening. And they tremble with terror because they have no clue what awaits them on the other side. They're merely culturally religious. In today's passage, we get to observe Jesus as he encounters a very religious man. And we're going to learn from Jesus himself what makes a Christian a Christian. What takes someone from cultural Christianity to genuine Christianity, from religiosity and a dead life to true faith and a joy-filled eternal life? And my hope is that for those in this room who have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, that our, our hearts would be once again ignited with joy and gratefulness and amazement and affections for our Savior. And even as we open the Word, church, I hope you see this today. There's several connections to the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to go through the Gospel of John. One, because we wanted to see these connections throughout the entire Scripture, from the Old to the New, and how Jesus is this fulfillment of these things. There are several of those today in today's passage. So I hope even, even you're amazed at God's word and how he intricately puts it together. So as a Christian, you would take his word and say, wow, this is amazing. The connections and how amazingly put together it is, I'm just blown away. And if that's you, you're joining in with me being blown away at God's word. And I hope that is the case for you today. But more so, that the word would, be, would point to our Savior and that your heart would explode with affections for him. And if you're gathered among us and you hearing about cultural Christianity, maybe you said you started to feel a little uncomfortable. That sounds kind of like me. Or I'm the one who has hated him. I'm the one who has despised him. But you're here. And you're here because he's still pursuing. And he wants you to hear his glorious good news once again. And I pray for you. I've been praying for you. And I pray that you would feel within you an explosion of life that you've never known before. And as the scripture opens up to you, this precious and mighty and holy Savior, that your heart would say, I want him. This one who I've despised, I want him. I long for him. That is our prayer for you. That is our prayer for you. So may we just leave this room with, filled with longing in every heart. Oh, may that be so. So with that, let's turn to the Scripture. Normally, we would read the passage of Scripture as a whole right at the beginning of the sermon, but at times, I think it serves us to just walk through it piece by piece, to walk through it little bit by little bit, read it, unpack it, apply it, and then move to the next section and just watch the Word unfold to us. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go piece by piece. So we'll read it, unpack it, apply it, walk forward, and then hopefully be amazed at the Lord. We'll spend most of our time in John chapter 3, but to get there, 
we have to go through the end of John chapter 2. We didn't touch the end of John chapter 2 last week, verses 23 through 25. And so that, those verses, there's a reason why we didn't do those last week, because those verses set the stage for today. Though it's broken up into chapters, right, that's a modern thing that the, the people have done to help us read through the Scripture but that section really lends itself towards chapter 3, and we'll see why in just a second. So at the end of John 2, we are introduced to a very important truth about Jesus. Here it is. Jesus knows who we genuinely are. And these points will be up on the screen. Some of the verses we go to will be up on the screen as well. Jesus knows who we genuinely are. Look at John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Follow along with me as I read. Now when he, speaking of Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus needs no one to tell him what's in your heart. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what a person is thinking about him or how they feel about him. Jesus already knows What's there? He knows us like a spotlight shining in the dark and hidden depths of us. What we think is hidden is not hidden from His eyes. So, so despite what we put on outwardly, however we try to look when we're around others or when we're around Christians or the church, though we may be able to convince others that we are a certain way, Jesus comes on the scene and John makes it clear that no one can hide from his view. He knows what is genuinely there and who, who you genuinely are. He knows, he, he knows when, you are, when your so-called belief really is unbelief. We're actually going to see that throughout the Gospel of John. It seems as if people are believing, but it's not quite believing. He knows when what you are believing in is actually something else other than himself. He knows when your belief is really just being enamored at what he can do. But you could care less about loving him for who he is. And when you think about that, this reality that Jesus knows who we, who you genuinely are, it should grab at our hearts. I can't hide from him. I can't fool him. That is encouraging at times, isn't it? Thank you, Jesus, that you know when I am weak and weary. Before that prayer even leaves my lips, you are a kind shepherd who knows the hearts of your sheep. And then on the flip side, it is utterly terrifying, isn't it? He knows everything hidden in my heart. So there are these people who are quote-unquote believing 
Jesus because of the signs or miracles he's done. Yet we're given a clear picture of what they're believing really is. It, it seems as if it's a facade. It's based off what they can see. It's in the signs that Jesus can do. Jesus knows what's in their hearts, and it's not a genuine belief that moves from what they see with their eyes and then captures their hearts. Rather, it's this belief that may lead to being drawn to Jesus, but more as a close spectator of Jesus. Enamored with what he can do, like someone in the stands who's come to see a good show or a circus. A type of belief that wants to keep its distance from Jesus, but close enough that you can watch him. You can watch him do things, and you can watch his people sing and praise and engage with him. It's just enough belief to see him as a miracle worker, as something different and unique from what's normal, almost as if it sort of entertains your imagination as you see there's something different about him. There's something mysterious and mystical or divine about him, like a unicorn in a bland world. You're drawn to him. I want to see more of this guy. There's that kind of belief. It's this belief that only leads to us being spectators or watchers of Jesus, but not lovers of Jesus. So this truth that Jesus knows what's in the heart of every person, he knows where there is true and genuine belief and where there is not, and this sets the stage for what we read beginning in chapter 3, where we see Jesus encounters a very religious man who's been watching Jesus, but he's a religious man with a big problem. And notice this. Notice, this is the intricacy of the word that I love. Notice this. Notice the very purposeful words John uses here at the end of chapter 2. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then chapter 3 begins. And what does it say? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It's ushering us in to this man who has come to Jesus by night. So with that, let's look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and here's what we see. Jesus encounters a very religious man with a very serious problem. Look at those verses with me, verses 1 through 4, follow along. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus was a highly regarded religious man in the community. John tells us that he is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, so essentially he's a man who would have memorized the Old Testament Scripture. He would have been serious and devout in practicing the feast celebrations and concerning the commands of God. In fact, 
being a part of the Pharisees, even adding hundreds, if not thousands, of more categories and subcategories to the law. So you can imagine the, the labor of trying to follow all of these laws and live a life of perfection that this man had sought after. A man observed by the community as a faithful rule obeyer. And so a faithful God follower, they would say. If there was anybody in the community where they would say, hey, who should we be like? Who should I raise my kids to look like? I know, Nicodemus. That's who we should point our children to. That's who we should look to. He himself carrying the status of of being a teacher of God's people, we're we're told in this passage, and would be the ideal religious picture in the community. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus drops this truth bomb on this most religious man. He tells him, you won't even see the kingdom. You won't even get to heaven in a sense. You won't gain eternal life, Nicodemus, unless you are born again. Now up to this point in the Gospel of John, we have already seen through these beginning chapters, Jesus is ushering in this this new and final saving work of God rooted in the person and work of Jesus himself. We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus himself is the new and ultimate Lamb of God sent as a sacrifice for God's people. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus at the wedding feast as he replaced the, the old wine that had run out with the new and better wine pointing to the new and better work Jesus was ushering in place of the old. Then we saw last week in the second half of chapter 2, during Passover, Jesus, as the new and ultimate sacrifice of God, enters into the temple and drives out all the old sacrifices. New, new, new. And now, in chapter 3, Jesus declares there is a new birth. As he confronts a man who represents the most religious rule followers of the land. And he says, you won't even see the kingdom unless you know the new birth. Nicodemus is perplexed. He's perplexed. He doesn't know what to do or how to process what Jesus just told him. And we're to feel the weight of that. We're to feel that. How confronting this is. That here's this man that would say, I've lived my whole life pursuing perfection, Jesus. Haven't you seen how good I've been? I've been the poster child for faithfulness in our community. I'm regarded highly among God's people. I'm sure I've earned a spot in the kingdom. But Jesus is turning Nicodemus' world upside down. He's confronting Nicodemus' belief, and he's confronting cultural religiosity. In these verses, not only that, we get a glimpse of what Nicodemus, of his belief of who Jesus is. He comes to Jesus, who... We know through John already in this gospel that Jesus is doing these signs to point to who he really is. The long-awaited Messiah. The Christ has come. The Savior of the world in whom Nicodemus has actually been waiting for. So instead, Nicodemus, you should rejoice and bow down. 
It isn't that God is merely with Jesus. He isn't just another teacher, another rabbi who God has seemed to bless. He is God incarnate. God in human flesh. And though Nicodemus recognizes something is different about him, he is different and unique, he wants to know more about Jesus, yet it's clear that he doesn't quite understand who this one in front of him is. Because had he known, had he known just who this amazing Jesus was, who's sitting in front of him, he would have fallen on his face before him, but instead he addresses him as rabbi. Teacher, not king, not Christ, just teacher, just like himself, teacher. It seems, it seems as if he knows there is something peculiar about this Jesus. He has something to do with God, so much so that it has led him to come to Jesus in the hiddenness of the night as a Pharisee to talk to this radical man named Jesus who is shaking up the community. And even that is very revealing. Because John does, not, does a lot in his gospel of talking about the light of Christ and the darkness of the world, doesn't he? And he uses the light and darkness symbolism over and over and over again to be an expression of the hearts of people. And right in the middle of that, he gives us this story of this man, Nicodemus, who is supposed to be a man of God. He's supposed to be an enlightened one in the community of God who is supposed to teach and point people to God, who's supposed to know God. And yet he's coming in the dark. And it's so symbolic. It's incredibly symbolic. This religious man is face to face with the God he professes to know, yet his understanding and awareness of the God in front of him is as if he is in the dark. And that is the way it is when we are only religiously a practicer of traditions. We are in the dark with the God we profess to know. And don't we know people like that? Don't we maybe have family members who are living this out? I can have several of them just coming to mind right now who would say, oh yeah, I can maybe quote a scripture or two, but when you hear them talk, they know nothing of the God of the universe. They're in the dark without even realizing. Maybe even some of us here and that's the problem with this very religious man. He's re he, his religiosity and rule following will not get him a view in the kingdom of heaven. He must be born again. And we're left asking the question, what does that mean? What does that mean to be born again? And poor Nicodemus is asking the same question, right? He ended that section with, what does that mean? Can a man really enter back into his mom and be born a second time? Well, no. And Jesus is now going to explain what the new birth is by using Old Testament passages. So verses 5 through 8, here's what we see. Jesus explains the new birth in an Old Testament way. He's going to talk to this Old Testament scholar and he's going to do work through the Old Testament before him. So what is it to be born again? Jesus answered, beginning verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there already, he's making this distinction. There's a difference between being born in the flesh, Nicodemus, and being born of the Spirit. So no, you're not going to be reborn by your mom. It's something different. And he goes on. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus begins to make this connection. He talks about being born of water and the Spirit. And then in verse 8, he talks about the wind. It's like this wind blowing. No one knows where it comes from and no one knows where it's going. They have no control over it. But when it blows, you know it and you see the effects of it. You see, I mean, think about it outside. You know when the wind is blowing. You feel it upon you. You see it visibly by the rustling of the leaves of the trees. It's an illustration Jesus is giving, connecting water and spirit and wind to being born again. And it's straight from Ezekiel 36 and 37 in the Old Testament. He uses Ezekiel to illustrate what must happen from God towards us and in us. So listen to this. It'll be up on the screen. Ezekiel 36. Listen to this and hear the connection of the words Jesus is saying. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, though you, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And here it is. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's a spiritual cleansing that God does to us. Pastor Rob talked about that earlier. What does water do when we're dirty? It cleans us, doesn't it? It washes us. It washes us. And, and the Lord, is, in His kindness, is taking something that is very divine and spiritual that happens with us, and He illustrates it in a way that we can understand. He says it's like this. It's like water that God washes you with. He's saying to Nicodemus, your religiosity doesn't earn you a spot in the kingdom of heaven. Something must happen inside of you. And it involves God cleansing you, washing you clean, giving you a new heart. What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? He gives His Spirit within you and takes this heart of stone towards God and gives you a heart of flesh that begins to feel and love God and begins to love what God loves and wants to honor God and obey God. He takes this heart as hard as stone that's a rebel to God and filthy with sin and disobedience. 
And through His Spirit, it's like He washes over you, cleansing and renewing. And He gives a new heart, softened to God, that desires to please God and loves God. It's this inward regeneration and transformation that takes place and then leads to obedience. Not obedience that transforms us but God's act of transformation that leads to our acts of obedience. Paul perfectly describes this in Titus chapter 3. It'll be up on the screen. Listen to this. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about and what the Old Testament is talking about. Listen. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That passage comes to mind every time I drive through the city of San Antonio. People hate each other. They don't even know why. They just do. Here it is. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, who is that? Jesus. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. That's what so many people in our cultural Christianity and the prosperity gospel get wrong. They flip-flop that process of regeneration and transformation. They think, my obedience earns me right standing with God. My obedience will make God love me more. My obedience is what my faith is in. And the scary part about that is, we stink at being obedient, right? If your faith is in what you can do, you are hopeless. Because probably even while we've gathered for worship, you've had a sinful thought. Maybe even about the preacher. Who knows? But we blow it all the time. And if your faith is in your own obedience, what a faulty foundation that will crumble. We see the, what, what the Bible declares is the opposite of that. Let's keep unpacking here. Jesus goes on. So he, he relates this being born again is like being washed by water. And not only that, but, but he uses another illustration that those whom God's Spirit acts upon to give them a new heart, it is as a wind that blows and gives life to those and to what it blows upon. And no one can control it or knows when it's coming or where it's going when it blows you see the effects of it and you know it so as the wind blows wherever it wishes so the spirit of god goes wherever he wishes no one can tell him where to go no one commands him we don't know where he begins and where he ends but when he goes when he blows forth we see it we know something's happening we know god is on the move that's why, as a church, we celebrate evidences of grace. Because it's, we've heard this, I didn't come up with this, we've heard this so many years ago, that even if someone is leaning, 
If a Christian recognizes their sin, they may, there may be lots of battle ahead. But even recognizing, seeing your sin is an act of God's Spirit working, blowing, breathing life into us. And so we say, praise God. Because dead people, spiritually dead, don't look at their sin and feel remorse. They're dead. Dead people don't say, I want more of Jesus, but I'm a struggler. Dead people say nothing about that. They're dead to Jesus. And so we celebrate any hint of a rustling leaf, metaphorically speaking. Any hint of God and His breath working. His wind that was over all creation at the beginning, breathing life into all creation. We celebrate it when we see even a hint of that in one another's lives. I think churches become unhappy when we forget that any movement towards the goodness of God is evidence of God at work. We, we become unhappy because we want something big to happen. Something like life-altering, shaking, like all at once. And we forget that every little hint is God whispering His life into someone. We become discontent, unhappy, when we should be the happiest people on the planet. People who still struggle. People are strugglers, right? We're wrestling in our hearts. We're not perfect people, but happy, weak little people, right? Weak little people, but happy people. I was talking to a brother this morning, and I wouldn't share details or anything, but I was just, there's a part where he's just sharing. I want to grow in this way. And I become discouraged when I, when I'm not aware, I'm not see, seeing that growth. And I, I want to grow in these ways. And I want to know the love of the Lord more. And here's what I'm celebrating in my heart as I'm praying for this brother. That's God already at work. Praise you, Lord. Because dead people don't say those types of things. Dead dry bones don't say that kind of stuff. Oh my, oh my, I got to keep going. We are way behind. Jesus uses this as an illustration relating the this, this spirit to wind and, and it connects to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, there's this picture in Ezekiel 37 of a valley of dead, dry bones. Bones that have just been laying there for years, dead, dry, lifeless, nothing upon them, and then this happens. Listen to this up on the screen. Beginning in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. There was a sound, and behold, rattling. The rattling of the bones. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And looked. I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. And the breath came into them and they lived 
and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Oh, amen. Yes. This is what Jesus is pointing to. Nothing we could do to earn it. You're sitting here and you hear the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. And you've heard that over and over and over again, and it meant nothing to you. But then, all of a sudden, one day, unexpectedly, that good news, whether young, old, that good news message really sounds suddenly like good news. All of a sudden, where you were once felt unresponsive to God's good news message like dead, dry bones, now, life. Now that message pierces you. Now all of a sudden you see your sinful life and you recognize your need for a Savior and that really is good news. And all of a sudden in my heart, there's affections and love for this God that I used, to, I used to smirk at or ignore. And now all of a sudden I'm sitting here and I, I long for Him. Why? How could that happen? What, what happened from the last time you heard that good news message to this time hearing the good news message? It wasn't the preacher. It wasn't that one illustration Maybe there's means of grace to help give us understanding. There's means of grace, I'll say that. But that wasn't the power. It was the breath of God blowing on dead, dry bones, breathing life where there was death. When I was young, I remember asking my pastor, and hopefully he'll preach here one day. He's at the Sovereign Grace Church in Midland, Billy. He was like a spiritual dad to me. I remember asking him one time at a youth gathering. We're sitting there and I said, how are you so joyful? I feel like a roller coaster. I'm crashing and burning and then I'm up and I'm happy and I'm down and all over the place. How are you so happy? Little did I know the dead dry bones of my life were not awakened to him. And that day, oh my, that night, I should say, in the middle of the night when the Lord rushed upon my heart, applying the gospel I had heard earlier that night, and I was on my knees calling to Him, crying out with joy. And I remember some of the guys in our church, we were staying somewhere in El Paso. I had gone along. I was completely lost. I was listening to terrible music in the church van. I was completely lost. And that night, the Lord rushed upon my heart. And I remember talking to the guys. We went at 3 o'clock in the morning. They took me to Whataburger. And just, we talked about what the Lord was doing in my life. And they said, you look like Billy. <laughs> it was the joy I had been missing. It was the breath of life of God that I was missing. When, you, when he rushes upon you, you see it. You know it. It may not all be like me. It may be, it may be a wonderful, constant blowing on someone's life as they're young. Every time their parent, their mom and dad is just reading the word of God to them and leading them through family worship at night and singing praises to God. 
Or it may look like a middle of the night little rebel sheep that has awakened suddenly. But when, you, when he blows, you see it. Nicodemus follows this up with a question in verse 9. How can these things be? How can these things be? I've tried to obey my whole life, Jesus. Everything I've built my faith upon is my obedience. And Jesus answers his question by first humbling this proud religious heart of Nicodemus. That's what we see in verses 9 through 13. Jesus humbles the proud and religious heart. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be in verse 9? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. How would you like Jesus to look at you and say that? Oh, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In answering Nicodemus' question, Jesus is pointing out just how little the religious ones of this world actually know. And he's turning their understanding upside down. And that is, that is actually a kindness of Christ towards the religiously proud. Even in this room, to show them how little they actually understand God and how much in need they actually are of him giving them understanding you can't understand simple earthly worldly illustrations Nicodemus how will you understand heavenly things wisdom that is not of this world how little do you actually know of this God that you profess to know? You think you have wisdom, but there is wisdom standing before you that is beyond you, religious man. The wisdom of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus takes the so-called enlightened ones of this world and actually reveals just how, I'm going to use a word, I don't always use this word, my mom told me never to use this word, how stupid they actually are. The wisdom of God actually reveals just how stupid the religious, apart from Christ, actually are. And that's what Jesus is getting at. In what, in what he just told Nicodemus, he's actually quoting from an Old Testament passage. He's quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. I think there's like seven Old Testament connections in this. We're talking about like four of them. Five of them. Quoting Old Testament passages to this Old Testament scholar and schooling him. In this case, Proverbs 30. And it's almost as if Proverbs 30 just comes to life and is lived out in this conversation through Jesus and Nicodemus. Listen to this from Proverbs 30. It'll be up on the screen. The man declares, okay, grab onto that again, right? Jesus knew it was in every man. He knew the hearts of man. Here comes the man, Nicodemus. Proverbs 30, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, God, and worn out. 
Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. And listen here, the connections. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Didn't Jesus just say that? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Wasn't Jesus talking about that? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Do you see? Do you see? Who has established all the ends of the earth? John chapter 1. What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Oh my. Nicodemus, you are the weary one who has no understanding before God. And not just you, but all those who who represent the cultural Christian. The religious one who thinks he can earn righteousness by his good works. Your wisdom is considered stupid to the God you claim to know. And here he is. He has come down. He He has descended. He has taken on human flesh. He is the one who holds the wind and the water in his fists. Surely you know he's right in front of you, religious man. What is his name? What is his son's name? Jesus. Jesus. The Old Testament passages, even Proverbs 30, find its yes and amen in Jesus. Oh, my. Surely you know his name, religious man. His name is Jesus. But in the kindness of Jesus, he doesn't just leave this man humbled. He points this religious man to the true way of salvation. Verses 14 through 15, Jesus points this religious man to the true way of salvation. This is our last point. Listen to this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus points Nicodemus to a story in the Old Testament, again, of Numbers 21. It's this story where God's people, they're in the wilderness, and they begin to grumble and sin against God. And in judgment, because sin is horrific, in judgment, God sends serpents, snakes, who go throughout the camp and begin to bite the people, and they begin to die. And if you hear that and you say, that is so harsh, friend, it is because you are not remembering how holy God is. No sin can come into his presence. My daughters and I, we just talked about this, so we had to My wife had to bring them home from the park because sin was abounding. We had to talk about a holy God and and the devastation of sin. Sin doesn't just affect us interpersonally. It affects, it's between us and a holy God. And he sees it as horrific. Just an ounce of it. And God sends judgment for that sin. The wages of sin is death. And so God sends serpents. And they begin to bite the people, and the people begin to die. Judgment. And Moses cries out to God, God, save your people. 
Rescue them from yourself. Rescue them from your judgment, your punishment for their sin and their wrongdoing. And God in His kindness, His great mercy, undeserved love and kindness as He looks upon them and His grace, He says, here's what you do. You take, and I want you to make a serpent, a bronze serpent, in the image of 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 that tool that was being used for judgment upon the people. And I want you to put it up on a pole. And I want you to lift that pole up high for all the camp to see. And whoever by faith looks upon that serpent will have life. They will be saved. They will be rescued. God took the means of judgment and made it into the means of life for the people. And Jesus says, just like that, Nicodemus, just like that, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus, Jesus is pointing, pointing to himself. He's pointing to the Lamb of God, the perfect one, but not just the Lamb of God who's come. He is God in human flesh who one day will judge the living and the dead for all of our sins. The same one who will bring incredible judgment upon all the earth would be nailed to a cross and lifted up high for all people to see and look upon. God says, whoever by faith looks upon Him high upon the cross will be saved. Whoever looks upon Him, and you can hear it, Right, you can hear it in it, the, the whispers of people. They say, well, why do I have to look upon him? I'm sure that was echoes of the people back in Numbers 21. Why do I have to look at that pole? Why does that save me? Why can't God save me another way? Why can't he just say, saved, and I'm done? I don't know, friend, but that's what God has commanded. And by faith, we're to trust him, that he keeps his word. And if he says, look upon the pole with the snake upon it, in faith and believe that I will save you, he will surely save you. And so here's what the call of Numbers 21 is. Run to the pole. Friend, run to the pole and look upon the snake and be saved. Judgment has come. Find salvation in the means God has provided. And now on this side of the cross, the same call beckons to us from this passage. You cannot look to yourself to pay for your sin, for salvation from your sin. You cannot rescue yourself. Sin, like the biting snake, has attacked. Its wages are death. And the call of Christ in the gospel is run to the cross. Run to the cross and look upon Christ on the cross, who in one hand gives the spirit of life, and in the other hand, the washing waters of cleansing. And with both hands, redemption from sin and its punishment. Hung upon the cross. Run to the cross. Run to Christ upon the cross and see your sin paid for. In faith, trusting God that that is the means of salvation He has provided. There's no other way. There is no other way for escape. There's no other way for salvation. And what a kind God We don't deserve to be saved. We deserve the judgment. But in His mercy and grace, 
He makes a way. He says, I'm going to save. Oh my. Run to the cross. If you're a Christian in this room, and we're closing, we're closing here. If you're a Christian in this room, precious one, you don't stop looking away from Christ. He is your only hope for salvation. From that first day you believed and looked upon Him and have known Him by the power of your Spirit, because how do dead, dry bones even choose to look to the cross? How do they even look to Jesus for that salvation? By the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ given by His own hand. Coming and beckoning to your heart. Look. Look. Turn away from your works and look to the work of your Savior. It's not your obedience that transforms you. It's His obedience. Look and have life and believe worship oh if that's you precious saints what grace amen what salvation has come to us all undeserved that's deserved oh man the only right response is to sing and praise him isn't it the only right response is to say thank you thank you lord oh may that truth just cause affections to swell up because that's what's happened if you've known him He's looked upon you and in mercy and grace rushed upon you and said, look upon me. <laughs> if you're here and almost like, almost like, almost like the silly person in the camp of Numbers 21 who's not looking where Jesus, where the, where the God says, look, look for salvation here. How foolish not to look. The call for you is look upon Christ today. Look upon Him and know Him for who He truly is and turn away from your own works. Come and throw yourself upon Him and know His salvation. Let's pray.